It's good to be back with you, as always, and it's an honor to be recommended by the board uh, to be your interim pastor. Uh, it's honored, I'm honored to be considered for that, and it would be my joy to serve you in that way. It's the end of August. The summer is sadly coming to an end. That's not a good way to start my sermon. <laughs> So sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> we still have September. So after pulling three double shifts in a row, Billy, he, a hotel clerk, was worn out. On one of his few breaks, he went to the hotel restaurant to grab a bite. When his food came, Billy, his mind in a fog, bowed his head for the blessing and whispered th these words to God. Good evening, Holiday Inn. How can I help you? So last time I was here, uh, which was the beginning of August, started a little mini-series on Philippians. Uh, we looked at the mind of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. And when I was thinking about at the beginning when I said I'm going to do a two-part series on Philippians, I thought the second one is not going to connect really at all. The only connecting thing I thought in my mind was that these two things would be from Philippians. And after much more studying... And reflecting on this text, I realize how much of a reflection this is on Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And how much of those themes really come out here uh, in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. And, and also, I think it's a, little, a good parallel to my sermon from the beginning of July, a long time ago, uh, from, on Romans 8, which was the hope of glory. So if you weren't here at the beginning of August, or if you forgot what I talked about, I will be referencing that many times this morning as we look at Philippians chapter 3. But Christian living is always shaped by the fact that there is something beyond the present. That there is a purpose to history. Many people live today like there is nothing beyond this life. They're either trying to make it as good as they can, or they're not doing anything because there's no point. But one of the chief tenets of the Christian faith is that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus is returning, that there is a point to history. And as one of the historic creeds says, the Nicene Creed, it says that He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So this is an extremely important part of Christianity. We remember that when Jesus ascended, into heaven and the, and the disciples are looking into the sky and the angels said, what are you doing looking? <laughs> get to work. You know, get to Jerusalem. And, he's, and, and the angels say to him, just as you saw him go into heaven, you will see him in the same way. So that's important for this morning. In this section of Philippians that we're going to look at this morning, we really get an inside look into Paul's diary. I'm sure everybody loves to look at somebody's diary. So we get to do that with Paul. He knows. We can, we can kind of sense the imminence of his death by the way he's writing. He thinks, and he has a really good reason for thinking, he's sitting in a, in a jail, and, and scholars are kind of, they, they're not really sure what jail, but he was in a jail writing this letter, and he can sense that his time on earth is coming to an end. But really... He wrote this letter, I think, about 60 A.D. 
and tradition says that he died about 66 AD. So he, he still had a few years on earth, but you can tell that there's this earnestness as he's writing this letter to his congregation, his beloved congregation in Philippi. So this morning, we want to look at Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we've been in Your presence this morning. And as we continue, we thank You that You allow us to worship You in spirit and in truth. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You're speaking to us through Your Word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes and ears and our minds. Grant us grace to understand the truth, the truth that set us free from any fear, any lies. We know that You are a good God and we are just thankful that we can come into Your courts with praise. Center our eyes on, on Jesus Christ this morning. In everything that is going on in this world, we need our eyes to be centered on You, O Lord. Help us to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. So the city of Philippi where this letter is being written to, it was named after a prominent Roman, uh, a prominent person in the Roman Empire. And it was uh, in the region of Macedonia, so it, it was relatively close to the center of the Roman Empire. It was very close to Rome itself. It's a Roman colony, 
uh, uh, sorry, a Roman settlement, and as one scholar notes, since it had the status of a Roman city, its free citizens enjoyed Roman citizenship. So that this was a, a city that was proud of being Roman, and they were part of that, uh, that uh, imperial cult. They elevated the Caesar to deity. They considered him to be the divine lord of the world, and they worshipped him. Among all their other gods, they were to worship him as well. They were to pay homage to Caesar as well. So we really get the, uh, the frame from which Paul is writing and what the Philippians are living in. They're living in a pagan world. They're living in a world that loves their government, uh, loves Caesar, praises Caesar. I don't know if anybody loves their government, but they love their government, and uh, they loved Caesar, um, and they elevated him. So Paul is encouraging the church of Philippi in the midst of a pagan society, really, in the midst of an anti-God, anti-Yahweh, the true God, society. And he's writing to a church. There's, there's so many things that are, that are happening for that poor little church there. Because they have this, this coming on one side, this Caesar worship, and on the other side they have false teaching coming into the church. And, and so they're really boxed in, and Paul is writing to a church that's in this situation and trying to help them get through this weed, through all this. So we, we start at verse 8. At the beginning of this passage we're looking at, Paul says that in comparison to knowing Jesus, all things are meaningless. In, in comparison to everything else, he says that, you know, he said, I'm from Israel, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, I was a, I was a Pharisee. I was zealous. I was a persecutor. I was righteous. I was blameless. And yet he says, I count all things. I count my former life as loss. I don't want it anymore. Because I want to follow Jesus. It's, it's meaningless. And that sounds like a line out of Ecclesiastes. Which, who knows, maybe it could be. Um, but... With what Paul is saying, we can fill in the blank there and we can finish that sentence for the author of Ecclesiastes where he says, everything is meaningless apart from Jesus. Or, put it this way, but pursuing Jesus is the ultimate goal. This is really what Paul is getting at here. Paul writes that he has lost all things for the sake of Jesus. And Paul literally did. We read that in his other letters that he went through all these trials and tribulations and he was at the mouth of a lion and he was in jail and he's in jail as he's writing this letter. He was shipwrecked. He probably had, uh, he probably had the same pair of clothes that he went with. He literally lost everything as he went about on his missionary journeys. He considers them as rubbish. In verse 8... <laughs> Uh, rubbish, as garbage, as filth. He considers everything about his former life before knowing Jesus as garbage, manure, literally dung, poop. Uh, and I say that because we're really supposed to get... This is a crass term that he's using. I can't believe I just said that in church. <laughs> uh, the word that... yeah. Uh, that's the point that he's getting here is that uh, this, that's how he thinks about his former life. 
It's, it is supposed to be crass. And this is the only time that this, appear, this word appears in the New Testament, this, the way that it's translated rubbish. That, that word uh, in the original language appears only once in the New Testament here. So it's really emphasizing that Paul is adamant. Paul is sure that he, he's adamant that, uh, about leaving behind his old way of life. The former things mean nothing to him so that he may gain. He wants to lose so that he can gain Christ. Paul is showing them what it looks like to have the mind of Christ. Well, Back in chapter 2, he says that for the sake of unity, for the sake of church unity, have the mind of Christ. Think of others as better than yourself. And I think he's expanding that here to say, think of everything as loss. Count all things as meaningless in this world in order to know Him, in order to serve Him. Count yourself as loss, which was what, his, what pardon me, was His emphasis in chapter 2. Count yourself as loss. Here, count your stuff. Count your, your, your accomplishments as meaningless. So the, the question that Paul could be posing here is, are you willing to give up absolutely everything including yourself, to follow Jesus. This was Jesus' pattern. We think, we, we, we think about that in chapter 2, where it says that though He was in the form of God, He didn't count it as anything to hold on to. And He became a human. He emptied Himself. This is really what Paul is getting at. This is the pattern. Jesus emptied Himself. He said, I'm, I, I'm getting rid of everything he, he, he was still God, but he left his glory. This is the pattern. And this is Paul's new life. He's only concerned with being conformed to Jesus, as he says in verse 9. He wants to be found in him. He wants to be united with him. He wants to be conformed to Jesus. There's this, when he says found in him, there's this intimate uh, um, relationship, this intimate connection where they are together. And it's kind of a mystery. Uh, and we see that when we, become, when we become like Him. The next two verses, in verses 10 to 11, He says that He wants to know the power of the resurrection of Jesus. He wants to know the power of the resurrection. But He also recognizes and He knows that He has to suffer he must suffer with Christ in order to die with Christ and to be raised with Christ. He wants to participate in the suffering and death of Jesus in order to fully know the resurrection of Jesus and to be in further fellowship and union with Him. And I really emphasize that term, participation with Christ participating. When we go through trials and tribulations and sufferings, we are participating in the sufferings of Christ. And Paul knew that. He wanted to so that he would be raised, that he would be resurrected with Christ. Again, this is similar to, to having the mind of Christ in chapter 2, where Christ left His heavenly throne. He became a servant. He was obedient to death. And he received exaltation by being raised from the dead, and he assumed his rightful place at his heavenly throne. 
He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, something to be exploited, something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he gave it up to be obedient to his Father. And Paul is participating with Jesus in his obedience by obediently going into suffering. Uh, that there are Christians, there are preachers who would say that's not, that's not true, that God wants to bless you with health and wealth and prosperity. And I mean, that sounds great, but that's not what the New Testament says. That's not the life of Paul. The life of Paul was suffering, <laughs> loss, death. He wasn't wealthy, he wasn't healthy. What was the other one? Health, wealth. Oh, and prosperous. Yeah. I didn't see Paul driving a limo. He was shipwrecked. So my point is, is that he's following Jesus into that, into that same uh, kind of obedience. Just as Christ did not count his glory to be something he needed to hold on to, Paul counts considers all things as loss as well. Jesus considered his reputation as loss. He, he considered his glory as loss in order to be obedient to his Father. And this is the pattern that Paul is following. He does not consider anything in this world as worthy of holding on to, because his desire to be conformed to Christ is so much stronger. His des- we can just see that desire in Paul. I want to know him. I want to be found in him. I want to know the power of the resurrection. As one scholar notes, Paul acknowledges that the resurrection is a future event, but its power is made known here in the present, through suffering. Many years ago, I, I, when I read this text, I've read, I've read this text so many times, but when I saw that particular verse, verses 10 to 11, something stuck out to me. And that was that in this life, we experience that resurrection power in our own lives. We experience that resurrection power every day as Christians. We are raised with Christ. That's a past event. Whenever we came to Christ, I was raised with Christ. But every day as I'm walking this Christian life, I'm being raised with Christ. And actually, we, we see that... Man, these videos, they're good. Uh, hard to live up to. But uh, the videos, they show that Jesus is the healer. And really, Jesus is still the healer, of course. Uh, But he was showing that God's kingdom was coming, that this resurrection power, this new creation power was coming to earth, coming to transform our world. And and so these healings were really showing that God wants to heal, through Jesus, our inner persons. Um, And of course, he still heals today. Uh, But that's what this, that's what the, the, and even Lazarus was resurrected. 
But this isn't what Paul is talking about here, at least. We're going to get to that in a second. But what Paul is talking about here is an inner resurrection. An inner resurrection. Where um, we become more like Christ every day. In verse 12, Paul recognizes that this is that dying and rising with Christ is a is a continual process. This he he says, I haven't reached this. I haven't been raised with Christ. <laughs> uh, I'm still living in this world. And he knows that this is something that he pre- that he must press on. He he presses on to make it his own, because Christ has made us, has made him his own. He presses on every day. <clears throat> he admits that he hasn't reached this goal. He hasn't reached the final resurrection. He repeats himself in the next verse. He kind of uh, he's a he's good at doing this kind of thing. He he uh, says something and then he says it again in, in a different way. It's a good way of communicating. Uh, he emphasizes that he has not reached the end goal. That's what he's trying to really. Uh, underline here is, uh, you know, if I was writing this on, if I was writing a letter to you, I'd probably bold, italicize, and underline that so that you would really understand the importance of this. That's what Paul is doing here by repeating himself. I haven't reached this. I haven't made it my own. But one thing that that I'm going to keep doing is straining on. This is his mission to leave behind all things and move ahead Straining forward. Other translate, uh, translations put it as reaching ahead, forward, or stretching forward. And this original, the word in the Greek, implies that this is a continual process for Paul. This isn't something that just, uh, you know, I'm, he's always reaching. He's always reaching until he gets that end, that end goal. He will not stop until he gets what he's looking for. So what is the goal? Well, he says, the goal is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to win this prize? What is the upward call of God? Anybody? What is he talking about here? What is the upward call? Exactly. Exactly. Based on the context, he seems to be referring to the resurrection, to be like Jesus, being conformed to Him. He is pursuing the goal of being completely transformed in the image of Jesus Christ. And he indicates that this is the mission for all Christians. For he says that those who think they are mature should think this way. (laughs) If you really think you're a mature Christian, he says, have this attitude. Have this attitude. Later on, we'll get to this more, but he says, uh, you know, look at these people. They're not mature, so don't follow them. If you think you're mature, if you think that you're on the right path, that you're growing, if you're humble, you'll have an understanding that you haven't reached the goal of the upward call and that you want to keep pursuing it. This is, the, this is really the mind that Paul is getting at here is a mind of humility. 
That was the mind of Christ, the mind of humility, recognizing that I have not reached that end goal. I am still a finite human being with flaw, with sin nature inside of me, but I'm still pressing on because I know that I am Christ. You're pursuing the mind of Christ and, and you're continually reaching on for that goal. Now, it's interesting. People always think that the, what Paul says next is kind of arrogant, but I don't think it. I think it's a good thing what he says. He says, he's so bold to say, follow me, imitate me. Imitate the pattern that I'm laying out for you. He says, walk according to the example you have in us, which I really believe he's referring to the elders of the church because he he, um, he mentions them in chapter 1, verse 1. He mentions overseers and deacons in chapter 1. So I think he's saying, follow the example that has been set forth by me and the elders of this church of Philippi. Follow our example of laying all things aside. The elders followed his example as they followed Christ. It's not that oh yeah, let's, uh, let's elevate Paul to this superstar status and let's follow him wherever he goes. No, it's about imitate the lifestyle that, he's, that he has. Don't do everything that Paul is doing necessarily. Uh, just because the pastor may have, uh, you know, whatever he may have, uh, a basset hound. Oh, we better get a basset hound because that's, that's what the pastor has. No, it's living that lifestyle. This is a good reminder for the leaders uh, of, of any church. Can, can the leaders of a church say that, that our life is worth imitating? Will people look at our lives and know that we have abandoned everything about this world? And will outsiders be able to see that about us? But really what Paul is saying here is that can... The congregation, can the flock look to their shepherds and have, a, have the pattern of what it means to be a sheep? Our shepherds are sheep. How are they going to live as sheep? They're, they're leaders. This is, this is what leadership is, is showing how, how to do it. Not giving people information and go, it's, let's do this together. He tells them to do this. He tells them to follow him because there are some in the church. Uh, this is where the false teaching is coming. There are some in the church who are not worthy to be followed. They are not living according to godliness, and they teach others to do so as well. These people walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They are opposed, as one scholar says, to the things uh, in chapter 2. They're opposed to the mind of Christ. They're so fixated on the things of earth uh, and, and satisfying and worshiping themselves rather than on thinking about others. They're so fixated on that. And these are the ones who are not mature. These are the ones who think they are mature, so they better act like they are. Really is what Paul is getting at here. They're not denying themselves. They're not being obedient. 
They're opposed to that. that. That's what he's getting at here. They're opposed to the heavenly calling. They're so fixated on earthly matters. And the path that these people are taking is the path of destruction. Well, the path that Paul is taking is the path of life. The path of destruction is setting one's mind on earthly things. Well, the path of life is setting one's mind on heavenly things. Now in verse 20, Paul opposes these false teachers, their false teaching, and their immoral lifestyle, and reminds the church and all Christians in all times that our citizenship is in heaven. From where we await the return of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse and the next, I think, really contain the most fascinating and wonderful, and really, <laughs> these are probably the most countercultural verses in Paul's letter, for he's directly opposing Caesar, and he's directly opposing the Caesar cult in what he's saying here. He is quite pointed in using the term Savior, using the term Lord. Um, and using, yeah, using Savior and Lord is quite pointed in, in opposition. It's also interesting that while our citizenship is in heaven, we await, our, uh, we await Jesus. We await the return of Jesus. We could get these things a little bit mixed up uh, in thinking that our citizenship is in heaven, so that's where we're going to go, and that's where we're going to be forever. But he says, our citizenship is in heaven, but Christ is returning. Christ, our Savior, our Lord, is returning. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. I like how the NLT translates this. It says that He will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like His own, using the same power with which He will bring everything under His control. You really get the sense in this translation what Paul is, trying to, what Paul is articulating here is that when Christ returns, it will be like a military conquest and victory when we see that He raises us to be like Him and He brings all things on earth under His dominion we will see that He is Lord. And, and so how does this relate to the, this juxtaposition between Jesus and Caesar? Well, I'm going to quote one of my favorites, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. He, he helpfully explains Paul's thought here. He, he's, he's saying that the return of Christ from heaven to earth was framed in explicit opposition to the return of Caesar. It's framed in complete opposition to Caesar. He writes, The idea of the emperor coming from the mother city to rescue the beleaguered colony had explicit resonances within the Philippians' own experience. These titles that Paul used here for Jesus, Savior, Lord, Messiah, Christ, are blatantly counter-imperial. What he's getting at here is that the, 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 the settlement, the colony of Philippi, they're citizens of Rome. But Rome is over here, and they know that 
they can trust on their Caesar to come and rescue them. He's returning. They're citizens of Rome, but they live in Philippi. And actually, the Caesar would come to them to rescue them. They're not going to go live in Rome. They're going to stay there, and Caesar is going to come to them and rescue them in their time of need. That was their hope anyways. And so, he, and so he's saying that, actually, that's, that's what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus is, is, an actual, is actually in control of the whole world. Jesus is actually Lord. He is actually King over the world. He is the one who is the name of, of all names. To echo Philippians 2.9, Caesar is a mere mortal. He died, and that was it. He didn't rise from the grave, and he cannot bring all things under his dominion. He's dead. Only Jesus can do that, and he will. And he started to do that through us. When we submit ourselves to his dominion, he is, he, he, this is his kingdom on earth, and he's coming back to bring it fully we will witness with our eyes that He is King because He will transform our bodies with His royal power. The power He has been given to make the whole world subject to Him. This is the goal that Paul is striving towards. This is what the upward call is. This is what he's continually striving towards. This is what he's reaching out for is to know Christ, to know Him fully. For when we know Him fully, um, we, we will see Him as He is because we will be like Him. The NASB translation is also interesting here. It says that He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. This is again a clear parallel to chapter 2. That Jesus humbled Himself and received glory. Jesus was exalted as a result of His humiliation. And therefore, for every believer, this is the same pattern. Humiliation and dying with Christ that results in exaltation, which means experiencing the resurrection. This is why Paul considers all things as loss for knowing Christ. Because all things will be made subject to Jesus. He will transform this world and us to bear His glory. And we reach chapter 4, verse 1. He writes, Therefore, as a result of the previous thought, this is how you should live now. Stand firm in the Lord, he writes, because of our citizenship and the fact that we will be transformed, Paul exhorts us, stand firm in the Lord. Jesus is coming back. So don't give up on pressing toward the goal. Keep suffering with Christ, for you will eventually attain the final, full, complete, glorious resurrection. Keep suffering. Because you will, in the midst of that suffering, rest assured that you will attain the goal. But stand firm. Stand firm. 
In the situations of trials and suffering, that is the time to really stand firm and to keep straining for the upward call of God. Don't lose hope in the coming age. Don't lose hope in what we know will be the, uh, the, our future reality. We can stand firm because Jesus is King. Stand firm then in counting all things as loss for knowing Christ. Stand firm in having the mind of Christ rather than the mind of the world. Do not forsake the path of our citizenship. We are citizens of heaven. But that does not mean that we live, we just kind of live like that's not the reality. Hope of the future reality is what drives our present lifestyle. Living as if we are living in that future reality. For the people in Philippi, they were living like they were in Rome. And that's our pattern. Living like we are living in Christ's visible kingdom, earthly kingdom. The kingdom is coming in full effect, but for now we must shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Okay, I'm, let's bring this all together and, uh, and I'll conclude shortly. Paul's aim is to let go of the things of this world that he may be ever more enveloped in the likeness of Christ. He wants to participate in sufferings because he wants his old nature to die in order that he may experience the new nature continually. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's kind of this paradox that Paul talks about is that, yes, it's reality that we're new, but we're still old. And we will become new. And he wants to participate in that. He wants to know the final resurrection power when our bodies are transformed to be like Jesus at the time when he returns. He's pressing on. And, I want, and, and Paul is clear, and I want to emphasize two points here within the fact that resurrection is a major element in Philippians. That's something that came out as of my studying for these two sermons, is that resurrection is quite a central element to Philippians. And these are two things that he emphasizes, that resurrection is a daily process, and resurrection is, uh, will be attained when Christ returns. It's a, future, it's, a, it's a present process, and it's a future reality. It's a twofold thing, wrapped up in the fact that both involve becoming like Jesus. The resurrection power in this life is an, is an attitude that comes from a heart transformed. It's an attitude. When our lives are, when our minds and our hearts are transformed by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. While the future resurrection will involve a complete new body in glory and in character, will be glorified, we will look like Jesus' post-resurrection body. And we will see Jesus as our King. And all things will be wonderful. Now, for us, 
we're living in a society that is, uh, there's a lot of unrest in our society. Of course, we're still in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, but in every situation, we are called to stand firm, even during COVID. And even, I think the bigger problem that we're facing now, it's, it's a, it's, COVID obviously is, but we see major unrest ripping, especially the United States apart. And there could be major consequences for our society. I don't know. But whatever happens, we're to stand firm. We're to stand firm in pressing on toward the upward call of God. Even in suffering, whatever kind of suffering any of us may experience, we're to stand firm. Uh, I think for Christians, obviously for Christians, we think about, um, you know, you may have lost somebody, and, it, and, and it's easy for people to say, why would God do that? Why would God do that? And that's a time to, say, to stand firm in the knowledge that Christ is returning, to, to stand firm in the truth. We can't wrap up our hope in our leaders, our, our ultimate hope. We can't, we can't uh, hope that our leaders are going to do it right. And we cannot be entrapped in the matters of this world. That's what Paul is getting at here. Are we, uh, are we giving ourselves generously? Are we giving our time generously in hopeful expectation that this is how Christ is bringing His kingdom to earth? For it's not just about the future reality. It's about living now. Christianity isn't about that ticket to heaven. It's about transforming this world. So with Christ, the best is yet to come. So keep pressing on. Continue to be men and women of God who experience suffering, to know Christ's power of life transformation. Know that you are citizens of heaven, and Jesus, our King, is returning to transform these humble bodies of ours to be in the same image as His. Again, with Christ, the best is yet to come, so keep pressing on. There is so much more to this life than the present, so keep pressing on. Let's pray. Lord, help us to press on. Help us to strive, to reach, to consider all things as lost for knowing Christ. Thank You that we are citizens. Help us to live in that present reality. Thank You that You love us, that You care for us, that You know what we're going through, that You stand with us, that we are participating in Your suffering and Your resurrection. We thank You so much for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.